0: Judges chapter 3. We'll be going from the first verse to verse 11. Judges chapter 3. It says this, These are the nations the Lord left in order to test Israel, since the Israelites have fought none of these in any of the wars with Canaan. it was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle especially those who had not fought before. These nations include the five rulers of the Philistines and all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who lived in the Lebanese mountains, from Mount Baal-Hermon Herm- as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord left them to test Israel, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their fathers through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to Cushan-Rishathaim, and the king of Aram Naharim, and the Israelites served him eight years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram, to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land was peaceful forty years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness. That you're a good God. And as we read from your word and as we reflect on the book of Judges, help us to feel the weight of sin and help us to reflect on the greatness of your faithfulness so we could cry out to you and trust you. Be with me as I preach. Help my words. We'll be empowered by your spirit. That the gospel be made clear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever been stuck in a riptide before? Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with oceans, riptides are a strong current in an ocean that could pull people further away from the shore. One second, you might be close to the shore, and if you turn your back and you let your guard down, the next, you could be swept away from safety. Now, the Christian life can be like a riptide. See, We swim towards a specific goal, but if we lose sight of what we're actually doing and the sinful nature and the broken world pushes against us, temptations can start to divert our gaze away from the one that we adore and away from our mission. So here's a question for you today, this morning. Do you coast in your Christian life? Some of us might be feeling like we're doing a pretty good job. We're mortifying sin every day and we're growing in godliness. Others might feel like you're doing okay. You're in a comfortable place. Yes, you're still in the ocean and you're still fighting, but you're doing just enough to get by. Others of us have completely given up and we just let the riptide push us away because it's just too strong. And it's not worth fighting the good battle. I'm going to drown anyway, so might as well enjoy my time floating while I can. See, in the book of Judges, God demands complete, consistent, continual faithfulness from his people. And he tests them to see just that. So here's the main idea. To pass the test of faithfulness to the God who delivers you to pass the test of faithfulness to the God who delivers you. And there's four steps to passing this test. Number one, you have to know the test. You have to know the test. Secondly, you have to remember the purpose of the test. Thirdly, you have to complete the test. And lastly, you have to cry out to God to help you with the test. So, a brief story recap for those of you who aren't familiar with the book of Judges. This is after Moses follows God's command and leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Then the Israelites receive God's law in Mount Sinai, and there are commands of clearing the promised land of any nations that exist when they enter this land. And after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses dies. And the Israelite people finally enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And Joshua and the Israelites obey the Lord's commands and begin clearing out a majority of the land and casting out the Canaanites. Then Joshua dies, and suddenly the mission turns into a complete stop. And people begin to slow down and stop their conquest of the land. And over time, they begin to assimilate into the culture of the pagans around them. And so in this story, the Lord is infuriated with his people, and he hands them over to a Mesopotamian king. And then the Israelites become enslaved to this king, and then they cry out to Yahweh to save them. So Yahweh raises up a judge, or a deliverer, named Ahniel, the nephew of Caleb, to deliver the Israelites. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel, and he beats the king. And then the land is peaceful, and Othniel dies. So that's the story. So let's start with the first way that we could pass a test, which is to know the test. To know the test. Let's look at verse 4. The Lord left them to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their fathers through Moses. So, the Lord is leaving these nations in the, in the promised land in which they're in, in order to see whether or not the Israelite people would actually follow the commands that he had given to Moses. Now, what are these commands? Well, they're in Deuteronomy chapter 20. So, keep your finger in Judges and flip back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verse 15 to 17. It says this, This is how you are to treat all the cities that are far away from you, and are not among the cities of these nations. However, you must not let any living thing survive among the cities of of these people, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You must completely destroy them, the Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they won't teach you to do all the detestable things they do for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So there's a clear command there, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, that the Israelite people are to enter the promised land and then they're to wipe out the Canaanites that are in this land that rightfully belongs to them. And there's a list of the nations that Israelites are supposed to go in and kill. But look at verse 3. The nations that are left that Israelites, that the Israelites do not kill include the Canaanites, Sidodians, and the Hivites. And then if you look at verse 5, it says that they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now those are the exact same nations that are named in Deuteronomy 20. So instead of killing them and obeying the Lord and carrying out the Lord's command, they instead settle with them. Now why would the Israelites do this? Well, one reason is that they don't know the Lord, and they definitely forgot His words. You see, if you remember God's words, then you remember what you need to do. Have you ever told a child to do something, like to clean their room, and then 30 minutes later you see them playing with their toys again? And you ask them why they're not cleaning up their room, and they just look at you with a sheepish grin, and they say, Well, you know, I forgot. And they don't actually do what is commanded of them. The same is with the Israelites. They don't remember God's words. They're not obeying His words. Do you forget God's word? Or do you not think that's relevant to you? Maybe you hear God's word every morning. And it's like a tennis ball hitting a brick wall. It just bounces right off. You see... It's incredibly relevant to us as Christians. We have to be centered on God's word in order to remember what he's commanding us. If we want to be able to obey the Lord, if we want to be faithful to God, we have to remember his word and his commands that he gives to us. And we as a church need to be a church centered on God's word that's how we should organize our services we should read the bible pray the bible hear the bible and see the bible in our interactions we should be centering ourselves around god's word because if you don't center your lives around god's word suddenly you center your lives around an agenda whether or not whether it's yourselves or the culture's agenda but it won't be god's agenda and we have to remember god's word the second way that we can pass the test is to remember the purpose behind the test so to remember the purpose behind the test so you can know the test you can know what you need to do but you might not understand the reasoning behind what you need to do again with the analogy of the child if a child walks too close to the street A parent yells out their name and grabs their arm and forcefully pulls them away and tells them not to go near the road, the child might do it again if they don't understand the dangers of the street. The parent doesn't want them to get run over. But the kid might not understand that. So we have to remember the why behind what we need to do. Look at verse 2. So the Lord left them in order to test Israel. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. So the first reason why God is testing the Israelites is a practical one. It's to train the nation to protect itself. What nation can protect its civilians without an army? See, if you're surrounded by all these opposing nations, and if you go in and you conquer, and you conquer them, and kick them out of the land, well, you're going to have a lot of angry neighbors. And you need an army in order to protect yourself. And over time, if you don't have a process in which you're continually training this army, you'll not be able to protect your nation. See, and the Israelites don't have a history of fighting either. They were enslaved to Egypt, they go out into the wilderness, and they wander around for 40 years, and then they finally start fighting when they enter the land. So there is no history or process in which they train the people. So God, in his testing, is actually providing for Israelite nations' needs. You see, there's times where we're tested, and we undergo trials. And sometimes it might be hard for us to understand why these things are happening. Other times, the Lord might command us to do certain things and we might not understand why. It could be frustrating for us. It's like we're constrained under these guidelines while everyone else is living freely. But actually, God constricts us and give us, gives us rules and tests for our good. He's training us. He's building us up in order to protect us. There's a second purpose behind this test. Look at verse 4. The Lord left them to test Israel, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands He had given their fathers through Moses. The second purpose behind this testing is to maintain the purity of the nation. You see, they have to maintain the purity of the nation. The Israelites are entering foreign territory. And if they assimilate themselves into the culture of the land they will inevitably end up worshiping their gods. And God is intending to maintain the nation of Israel and keep it as a pure nation that is wholly faithful to God. Now, someone might be listening to this and say, well, geez, it's a little unfair for the Lord to be testing them in this way and for the Israelites not to know. right? Wouldn't it be a lot more helpful... If God tells you why he's testing you, don't you think that the Israelites would have been much more faithful to God if they understood why God was testing them in this way? Well, I set up a trick question because God does. Flip with me to Joshua 24. Chapter, chapter 24, verse 14 to 28. So we see Joshua, after he leads the Israelite people into the nation asking them who they will serve, and talking specifically about the purity of the nation. It says this, Therefore, fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and worship Yahweh. But if it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose for yourselves today the one you will worship. The gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? As for me and my family, we will worship Yahweh. The people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. For the Lord brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and performed these great signs before our eyes. He also protected us all along the way when we went, and among all the people whose lands we traveled through. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because He is our God. But Joshua told the people, you will not be able to worship Yahweh because He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not remove your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, He will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. No, the people answered Joshua, we will worship the Lord. Joshua then told the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you yourselves have chosen to worship Yahweh. We are witnesses, they said. Then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and offer your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people said to Joshua, we will worship the Lord our God and obey him. Now, that's a lot of text. But you see Joshua continually repeating to Israelite people that you need to maintain the purity of the nation. And you can see even in the text that Israelites are getting frustrated with Joshua. Dude, we get it. We want to maintain the purity of the nation. You've told us enough times. We know what God did. Stop reminding us. You're nagging me. Get off my back. Give me some space. I know what I'm doing. And yet you see, in one generation, the entire nation of Israel forgets the reason why they have to get rid of their foreign gods and their idolatry and turn to Yahweh. See, you have to remember the purpose, otherwise you won't have any gas for the action that you need to do, right? If you want to work, you understand the purpose behind it. You work because you need to provide for your family. Food, shelter, and overall comfort are good things to have. So the why behind your working in your job is so that you can provide. So even though the working might feel tiresome or burdensome at times, you continue to do so because you understand the purpose behind it. The Israelite people forgot the reason... To maintain the purity of the nation, and so they turn to other gods out of convenience. For us as Christians, we need to remind ourselves why we need to stay pure. See, we're not just sinners living in a broken world anymore. We're God's temple. We display the light of the gospel to the world. And if we slack, or if we forget our mission, then we will lose the purpose. And as a result, we will begin to become complacent. We'll forget the purpose behind what we're doing. So that's to remember the purpose. That's the second way to pass the test. The third way to pass the test is to complete the test. Sometimes you just have to say it. You have to actually do the things that God tells you to do. If there's a test, and you think about the test, and you understand the why behind the test, you have to actually do the very action that God is commanding you to do. And here, the Israelites in verse 5 and 6 don't do what God tells them to do. Let's look at verse 5. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves, and gave their own daughters to their sons and worshiped their gods. So the Israelite people do the exact opposite of what God commands them to do. And there's some effects that are really obvious that happens when you don't fight that we can see here. So the first thing that you do, so I'm going to go over three effects that happen when you don't obey the Lord's commands. First, you settle you settle. So you start to tell yourselves subtle white lies are kind of have truths. Firstly, you might think, you know what? I can wait. I can do this later. They'll still be there. I'll still be here. I can drive out the Canaanites later. The second thing that you might do is divert responsibility, right? Joshua died. We have no leader to guide us. And I'm obviously not going to do this by myself, so I suppose I'll just sit here and wait until someone comes up and does it first. And I will wholeheartedly support him. Right? You can go first, man. I will be right behind you. The third thing that you might do is that you might start to get comfortable. So you sit there, you start interacting with them, and you start to think, you know what, this is okay. We can coexist and be all right. We can make do. And all those things are subtly opening doors for sin to creep in. So here's a second thing that happens after you settle. You begin to intermingle. Right? Think about when you're in school. You're in close proximity with a bunch of people and you're interacting with them on a daily basis. Inevitably, you're going to start making friends. I've never known someone who's been at a church For many years, who doesn't meet anyone unless they refuse to interact with anyone, which is not the natural way of going about things. So you settle amongst the people, and you're surrounded by them. Inevitably, you're going to start to live life with them. Think about the communities. Our community needs a school to educate people. Well, you live in the same neighborhood as I do, so let's start to work together to do this. And you start to get to know them. You invite your neighbors over for barbecue. And after a while, these Canaanites don't look so bad. In fact, they start to become your friends. And you start to look more and more like the people you're around. And lastly, you turn away completely. Look at verse 6. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves and gave their own daughters to their sons and worshipped their gods. You see, they became so intermingled with the Canaanites that the differences became indistinguishable. You could not tell the Canaanites apart from the Israelites to the point where there's no reason not to marry the Canaanites. And why not settle down with them? And when that happens, you inevitably have to start compromising your morals. See, when Yahweh says that he's your God and that you shall have no other gods, but your spouse is worshiping another God, and those idols are in your house, you start to blur the lines a little. Maybe I could worship Yahweh and another God. You start to compromise your morals for the sake of unity. See, but that's not what they were to do. They were to have correct division here. They were to have... Clear morals and understandings of God's commands and kick the Israelite people out. And for us as Christian people, we can fall into the same trap. You might hang out with non-Christians and after a while you might start to think like they do. You might settle with them. You might begin to intermingle with them to the point where you sacrifice your own morals. And then you start to think that you can compromise certain things for the sake of unity with other people. Now, in verse 6, you can see that the Israelite people are taking daughters as their wives. And for us as Christian people, I need to address this really quickly, which is that we're not to be unequally yoked to our spouses. It's in the text. So as a quick side note, we're not to marry unbelievers. So go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. So this could be a direct application out of what we see in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, which says this, I command the married, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to leave his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not live, leave her. Also, if any woman is, has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is to be set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they're set apart for God. But the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether or not you will save your wife? So let me address two camps here. To single people like myself, flirt to convert is not a good strategy. It does not work. You can think that it will work. But as you think that you'll be able to rub off some of your holiness onto your partner, they will rub their unholiness onto you. Do not compromise your morals. Now let me address a second group here. To people that might be unequally yoked to their spouse. Who might be married to an unbeliever. Take heart. You have a unique gospel opportunity to show Christ to your spouse. Right? Paul commands you in 1 Corinthians 7 not to leave your spouse, but to patiently be with them, to show Christ to them. They can't run away from you. You're living in the same house. So love them, be patient with them, and show them the gospel. You see, we have to complete this test. We cannot compromise on what we need to do, and we need to execute these actions. We have to do it now. Now, we've talked a lot about the Israelites and what they had to do, but what does this have to do with us? We're not out carrying swords like in the Crusades and killing other people for the sake of the mission, right? At least I hope we're not doing that. So what is the Christian mission? Well, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We as Christians have a different mission than what the Israelites did. In judges, So go to Ephesians 6. We're going to look at verse 12. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So, we're not fighting against actual people anymore. We're not fighting warring against a nation or a tribe of people or a country or a nation. We're warring against evil, the principalities of this world. You see, our war is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. Now, for us, it might be weird to think about this metaphysical, spiritual battle. It might look like Harry Potter, where people whip out their Bibles and they shoot spiritual rays at other people and attempt to make change. So, how do we as Christians fight? Well, 2 Corinthians has the answer. So, we're doing a lot of flipping. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll look at verse 4. And Paul gives us the tools in order to fight the spiritual war in the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Or... Starting from verse 3. For though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. Since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ, and we are to punish any disobedience once your obedience has been confirmed." So we can see in 2 Corinthians a tool that Paul is giving us in order to fight this battle. And there's two things that he talks about in order to do this. Firstly, we do this by speaking. This is the primary command. We do this by speaking to people, by defending the knowledge of God and preaching the gospel. So as we interact with this world, the way that we fight the evil and the principalities of this world is by defending the knowledge of God defending our views, and preaching the gospel. Now, there's an important clarification that we have to make here, which is that we're not teaching morality. We're not going out to the people and telling them that what they need to do is follow specific rules. Those are fine. I'm I'm not opposed to rules. I think morals are good, and we should have morals as Christian people. But if people don't understand the gospel first... They have no reason to follow these morals. There is no why. There's no reason for me to rope up an atheist and tell them to go to church every single week on a Sunday because they don't understand the gospel. There's no understanding of what the gospel teaches. So we shouldn't be teaching morality, even though we should engage culture at a moral level and have discussions about that we should primarily be talking about the gospel. The president of the Ethics, Religious, Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, Russell Moore, says that we need to shift from being a moral majority to being a prophetic minority. In other words, the U.S. is quickly shifting away from being a supposed Christian nation. People, generally speaking, aren't necessarily living under the Christian worldview anymore as it quickly moved towards secularism. So the solution is for us as a church to become a prophetic minority. We need to speak out to a culture that fundamentally disagrees with us and tell them the gospel. So what do we need to do as a church? We need to be a church that is clear on the gospel. Here's a good question to ask yourself. Do you know what the gospel is? If someone were to pull you aside and ask you to explain the gospel to them in 60 seconds, what would you say? Would you be put on the spot? Would you have no words? We have to know what the gospel is if we want to be able to effectively communicate it to them. That's knowing the test. We have to know how we can speak into them and why it's important. People are dying and going to hell every single day. And they desperately need hope. And we need to share the gospel with them. That's the purpose. And what do we need to do? We need to speak out and be active in telling people what the gospel says. To engage them with our words. That's the action. And we have to execute. And here's the danger and temptation for us Christians. Don't think yourself too big or the gospel too small not to address it. See, if you settle and you become complacent, you can start to think that, you know, my comfort is more important than sharing the gospel and rubbing up against other people. Or maybe the gospel is too small. Maybe you think that the gospel is actually not powerful enough. I'm going to share the gospel with my friends, and it's going to be really awkward. And they're not going to believe it. Well, Christian, here's a question to ask you. What were the odds of you becoming a Christian? Right? Wasn't it impossible? See, the gospel has the power of God. And we need to have confidence in it as we go out. And that's the mission that we have as Christians. Now, going back to the text, the last way that we pass the test is to cry out to God to deliver you. To cry out to God to deliver you. See, in verse 7, it says that the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. So you see that they forget the Lord. And for anyone who's read the Old Testament and read the first five books of the Bible, this is absolutely absurd. Yahweh consistently repeats, I am Yahweh your God throughout the law throughout the whole testament he repeats it over and over and over again in fact in just chapter 11 of leviticus he repeats i am yahweh 49 times in one chapter and throughout all the commands that god gives to the israelites he keeps repeating i'm yahweh your god do this I am Yahweh, your God. Do this. Like a nagging parent or spouse, repeating it over and over and over again. And you can see the depth of their depravity in verse 7. They did what was evil. They did the opposite of what God commanded them to do. They forgot God and they traded Him for empty idols. In verse 8, you can see the result of that disobedience. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he sold them to Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram-Nararim. And the Israelites served him eight years. See, God's anger burns against the Israelites for their sin. God hates sin. We have to emphasize this. God absolutely detests sin. Do you realize that God's anger burns against you when you sin? He hates it. There's no element in which God is okay with sin. Or that He ignores sin. Or that He belittles sin. He hates it. His anger burns against sin. So much so that He sells His own people over to Cushan-Rishathaim, to a Mesopotamian king. Now, that name is actually a moniker. So, the king's name probably wasn't actually Cushan Cushan Rishathame. And I know that's a weird name to say. But what that word means is doubly wicked or extreme wickedness or evil. And they're making fun of this king. In other words, God is selling these people over to wickedness out of their sin. Do you realize that God hates sin? See, when you turn away from the Lord, when you forget God, you are enslaving yourself to wickedness. Look at verse 9. The Israelites call out to the Lord. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raises up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. Now look at the description in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came on him and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle and the Lord handed over Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. You see, Othniel passes the test where Israel fails. In chapter 1, Othniel is mentioned, and he marries an Israelite. So he's in the tribe of Judah, he's the nephew of Caleb. And he marries an Israelite. He doesn't marry Canaanite people. He doesn't worship other gods. In verse 10, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And then he executes the action. He does the task in verse 10. He delivers Israel. And then in verse 11, you could see the effects of his obedience. Then the land was peaceful for 40 years. Land is peaceful. The Israelite people are redeemed. Great. The end, right? We can close the book. It's over. It's all right. No. There's a dramatic shift at the end of the sentence. Look at the second half of verse 11. And Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And then in verse 12, it says, The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. What happened? Wasn't this supposed to be the great redemption? Othniel comes up, God raises up a leader to deliver his people. Why does it stop after he dies? Why do the Israelites turn away from the Lord again? You see, in the book of Judges, it's a cycle that happens over and over and over again. The Israelites turn away from the Lord. Then a nation takes over Israel, and then God, and then the Israelite people cry out to God, and then God raises up a deliverer, and then after that deliverer dies, the Israelite people turn back to their evil ways. Why does this cycle keep happening? See, it's actually trying to paint a picture of a greater redemption. Go to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. Paul talks about this very thing about this cycle of disobedience and what it points to. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says this or verse 8. For if God for if Joshua had given them rest God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore a sabbath rest remains for God's people. You see Joshua, while he was alive, maintained the faithfulness of God's people for 110 years. After Joshua dies, the Israelites start to turn away, and then the cycle begins. See, but if Joshua gave them complete rest, God would not have spoken later about another day, about an eternal Sabbath rest. You see, Othniel represents a metaphor. He's pointing to a greater judge. A judge who doesn't have the limitations that Othniel has. See, at the end of verse 11, Othniel dies, but he's pointing to a greater judge who doesn't die. In fact, the very name Othniel in Hebrew is Lion. His name is Lion. So allow me, if you will, to read this text. You see, Othniel is the first judge, and Othniel is actually the holiest judge out of all the judges. And for every cycle afterwards, you're going to see a spiral downwards where every judge after him becomes more and more wicked. So Othniel's first cycle actually symbolizes the blank template that God is trying to communicate to us today. And it's so clean and such a good template that I could replace the words in this very passage— And we can see the gospel written throughout it. So let me read it for us. Man did what was evil in the Lord's sight. We forgot Yahweh and worshipped idols. So Yahweh's anger burned against man. And he sold them to extreme wickedness. And man was enslaved to it. Then man cried out to Yahweh. So Yahweh raised up the Lion of Judah as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he delivered man. The Lion went to the cross, and Yahweh handed over the extreme wickedness to him, and that, so that the Lion overpowered it. Then the land was peaceful forevermore. You see, Jesus lives forever. Amen? He's eternal. He commands the universe. He died and he resurrects in victory so that unlike Othniel who dies and the Israelite people continue to be enslaved, Jesus lives forever so that we can have victory forever. See, the last way to pass the test is to cry out to the God who delivers you from your failure. We all fail the test. There's no way that we can pass this test. So non-Christian, I know I've left you in the dark for this whole sermon, so let me address you really quick. This is what God is telling you today in this message. If you don't listen to anything else, listen to this one minute. Know that you failed the test. Do you realize that God's anger burns against you? Now, it might seem terrifying, you might want to ignore it, but here's the truth of the gospel. Firstly, we all failed the test, and you might think that the riptide has already carried you too far out, that you're already too far from the shore and there's no way that you can swim to safety. But the reality is, is that you've already drowned. You're not even in the water you've already sunk to the bottom anchored by your sin see and god's asking you a question today he's telling you to choose whom you will serve you see you might think that you're living a free life by not having a god but the truth is is that everyone's enslaved to something you might be enslaved to work You might be enslaved to status. You might be enslaved to happiness. But everyone serves something. And Jesus is the only master who dies for you and delivers you. So trust in him. Repent of your sins. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus will deliver you. Christian, what does God have to say for us based on this passage? Know that you've also failed the test of faithfulness and that we will continue to fail. How often do we forget like the Israelites and we turn away from the Lord? Oftentimes it might seem like we're at the same place that we were before we got saved. Um, Christian band Run Kid Run wrote this verse when they were talking about the depth of their sin in their song called Freedom. Saying, broken down I lay, I keep holding my chains, no longer bound, but here I stay. So you see this image of a prisoner who's been freed, but doesn't understand the freedom that they have. That they're still sitting down, even though they're not shackled, holding on to their chains as though they're still imprisoned. But the truth is, is that we have grace in a Redeemer who does not fail us and we have to remind ourselves of that hebrews um, chapter 4 14 says that therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god and therefore let's hold fast the confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without sin Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. See, Jesus was tested in every single way and he passes the test. He does everything right so that we can have grace in him that we would otherwise not have. So we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Because we identify with Christ. But does that mean that we just drop the ball? And that we just revel in our grace and not do anything? No. Others need to know this great news. We need to go out and engage the world. And fight this spiritual battle. And share the gospel with people. And what is God telling our church? That we need to hold fast to the confession that Jesus is Lord. Hold fast to the confession that Jesus is Lord. And not just the statement that Jesus is Lord, but the effects of and the implications of what it means that Jesus is Lord. That means that we have to kill complacency in each other's lives. When we see other Christians are slacking in the walk, you call them out. If you see them in sin, you rebuke them in love. We encourage each other. We stir each other up to love and good works. One of the ways that we do that is even in our business meeting today. When we meet together, we're focusing our gaze and our attention on how we can complete the mission of God and hold fast to the confession. Everything that we do as a church should be to advance this gospel. And we need to help other people gaze into Jesus and understand His mission so that they can cry out and be delivered as well. And brothers and sisters, we have complete confidence in this God. He's delivered us. We can have complete confidence in the work that Jesus has done. Not anything we have done, but what God has done for us. So let's go to him and trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for delivering us. We thank you that even though we failed this test again and again and again, you've sent your Son to save us, to deliver us from sin. So we thank you for that. And Today, as we sing, as we interact, as we have our business meeting, um, as we have our evening service and we pray together as a church, help us to see this and to remind each other of the great work that you have done for us. And will we never cease to be amazed by the great work that you've done for us. And will we never stop approaching your throne of grace with boldness out of the abundance of the work that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.